And the challenge is that the less credibility you have, the more risk someone thinks there is in being a customer. So the question is, how can you find a way to raise someone's credibility to the point where it's now high enough that they're willing to take on a certain amount of risk to become your customer? Welcome to Outside Sales Talk, where we meet with industry experts to learn the strategies and tactics that make them successful. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and I've helped thousands of salespeople all over the world crush their quota. Today, I'll help you crush yours. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Today, we have Craig Elias on with us, and we are talking about shift selling, turning your prospects into customers. Um, welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you very much for having me. So by way of background, Craig is a speaker and a trainer. He's number one in Canada and number 15 globally on LinkedIn's list of top 50 B2B sales experts. Uh, Craig is also the author of the book, Shift, Harness the Trigger Events that Turn Prospects into Customers. Uh, well, Craig, to jump right into it, what is shift selling? Enlighten us. So for me, shift selling is all about how do you find a way to take I say take advantage, let's just say leverage the opportunities that are created when there's a shift in people's mindset. So one of the things I've learned is that people are very often happy what they have, they see no reason to change. And then all of a sudden there's some shift either in A, their expectations get higher, or the performance of their perception of the performance of what they have gets lower, and that creates these opportunities. So they naturally happen. Shift is the first of three books that talks about how do you leverage when they happen to turn more prospects into customers? Great. So what are trigger events and, uh, and why, why are they important for salespeople to spot? So for me, and I'm sure salespeople have had this happen a lot. They pick up the phone, they call somebody, somebody says, I'm not interested, they're not interested. And then people go from being not interested one day to being interested the next day. And most salespeople say, well, I called that guy or gal six months ago, they're not only queue to be called for another six months. I have no reason to call them. And in between those touch points, they change vendors. And it drives salespeople crazy. They're like, I was talking to that guy for like six years or six months, and they never bothered to pick up the phone and call me. And this is one of those challenges in sales is it's, I don't want to say it's luck, but a lot of it is timing. And it's the ability to say the right things to the right people at the right time. And if you're not in front of somebody at the right time, it is really hard to change somebody's mind. Because when someone has an event, they start thinking of the solution or type of solution they're going to use when they decide they're going to change. And if you don't get to somebody during that part of the process, they decide that a different way of solving the problem or a different problem is what they have, then you never have any opportunity. So you got to get there early to help them not only define what the problem is, but then start the process of designing the solution. So can, can you give us an example of a trigger event and how a salesperson can respond to it? Yeah, so there's, there's three different types of these events. So first of all, there's the event that makes people unhappy what they have and makes them thinking of changing. So this is, the, this is the first event that makes them want to change. There's a second event that when people all of a sudden they want to change doesn't mean they'll do anything because they don't have time or they don't have money. And when they have that second event, now they have one time times both of those, then they actually start the process of searching for alternatives. And even after they've had that second event, 
there's a lot of people that don't buy because they can't justify the purchase to somebody else. So there needs to be this third event that allows them to justify it. So just within this first group of events that makes people want to change and puts them into what I call this window of dissatisfaction, I call them the A, Bs, and Cs. The A is awareness. This is what we do. We pick up the phone, we call somebody, we say we're better, faster, cheaper. Doesn't work very often. The B is when someone has a bad experience. A bad experience is often created when there's a change in people. So a change in salespeople for one vendor, the data suggests that a change in salespeople triggers 30, sorry, 28% of all vendor changes. So a new salesperson comes along, they have a bad experience, they leave. Some change in the product, it gets end of life, or some changes made, they're no longer happy, they leave. Or some material may change in the provider. So a lawsuit, a merger, a plane that goes down that's exactly the same as it went down six months ago. So Boeing right now has that problem. People begin to have a bad experience. Now all of a sudden more people are thinking about maybe I should be choosing Airbus instead of Boeing based upon that bad experience. The third one is the C, which is changes inside the organization. This is my favorite. Bad experiences are hard to predict. Changes in your competitor salesperson, maybe, but it's a change in decision maker, so people, a change in places, so opening an office in a new location where maybe the laws are different, or some material change in uh, priorities. Very often, one company does something or announces something, and the competitors have to find a way to respond right away. These are the C's and the changes. And my big one is a change in decision maker. I love a change in decision makers. There's a book out called The Challenger Sale. I disagree with the vast majority of the book. Doesn't mean I'm right, just means I disagree. But here's the thing. In that book, they talk about a very unique group of people. They're called mobilizers. These are the people inside the organizations that tend to make things happen. It just turns out, that a mobilizer is created when somebody's new in their job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So those are the three different types of events. And, and how can salespeople identify these mobilizers who are decision makers who are thinking about changing vendors? Yeah. So there's a bunch of different ways. You send an email to somebody and that email bounces. What does it tell you? That person has left. Or you end up with a left the company uh, notification. Or what happens is you're connected with somebody on LinkedIn and they change their LinkedIn profile to include their new title. LinkedIn has this really cool saved search feature that allows you to go in and say, hey, of my, I don't know, let's say 20,000 plus people in my network that have the title sales, and I only want to talk to people that have a new job title as a VP of sales, I put that in LinkedIn and every week it says, hey, Greg, here's 128 people that now have that title go have that conversation. The other way you could do that is by using a Google Alert. So you set up a Google Alert, you say appointed VP sales, appointed VP marketing, appointed VP operations, and it will then tell you every time somebody shows up on a press release that now has that title. The other way is through job postings. Mm. So looking at Indeed, you look at a job posting, right? What does that tell you? that not only has that company got an opening, but it tells you the person who left that job has recently moved into a new position. The job postings can also be really good indicators of people that are thinking of changing. That's the one way. The other way is when we phone people 
and they say to us, I'm thinking of changing, why don't you phone me back in six months? If anybody says something to you like that, what does that tell you? It tells you they're thinking of changing and now's the time to have that conversation because what happens when you phone them back in five months or four months? They've already made a decision and you totally missed the opportunity. Mm -hmm. that, that's, a, that's a great point because I've definitely seen that before. How, how do you identify the urgency with which someone is changing? If someone's like, ah, oh, I'm thinking about making a change. We should talk in six months. And you're like, you're, gonna, you're thinking you're going to have made the decision in four or five months. So, you know, how, how, do you, how do you move? How do you pull them in? What's your, walk me through your talk path on how you. That's a really good question. I'm going to tell you this was one of the hardest things I had to solve. Because when I started doing this way back in like oh, two or oh, three or oh, four or oh, five, I just said, take people up for coffee, find a way to get to know on a personal level, see if you can go for lunch. But what's happened in the last couple of years is I have come up with something called the 21 day process. So let's pretend I pick up the phone, I call you and you say, I'm thinking of changing, coming back in six months. I'm totally gonna say, I will definitely do that. But what I'd love to do is understand the problem more can, is there a way for me to get 30 minutes in the next week so I can understand your problem more and I can be more prepared in six months? Now, you're a busy guy. What are you going to say to me? Nah, I'm busy. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so then I'm going to say, well, um, would you have any time in two weeks to spend 30 minutes together? You're a busy guy. What are you going to say to me? Um, that, that's, uh, my, my schedule's pretty booked. I'm actually traveling that week. <laughs> so then here's what I do. What I've learned is most people won't say to no to you three times in a row. So what I say is, what if I made it just 20 minutes and if it was three weeks from now? Well, no, 20 minutes isn't too bad. <laughs> and three weeks from now, I have nothing in my calendar and all of a sudden yeah. now, I've got my 20 minutes with you and when on that conversation, I'm gonna help, I'm gonna understand what you think is the problem, of which then I'm going to ask a few questions and then I'm going to ask if you have any interest in understanding why that might not be the problem, and how something else completely different might be the problem, and why it's worth looking at what the problem really is. And as soon as you give me permission to reframe your problem, that's when I win the battle. Because if I can convince you that the problem is not what you think it is, but it's related to something I can help you solve with my product or service, and I'm the first person you talk to, guess what the data says? The data says, that I am 75% likely to win that piece of business. Oh, wow. Um, so let's talk about emotional elements because you, you talk about that a lot in your book. How, how important is, is it for salespeople to include emotional elements in their, in their value proposition other than the value of their products? Yeah, so here's the way that I comment. If you can do this, so a perfect value proposition takes less than seven or eight seconds to say, it contains no nouns that describe the product or service, but it does describe the value of being your customer. And in a perfect world, you wanna try and find a way that takes away a pain, something you can minimize, reduce, or eliminate, because what I've learned is people are, and the data says, anywhere around, 10 times more likely to act to avoid a negative than they are to actually move towards a positive. Okay. So if I can reduce, minimize, or eliminate, they're much more interested in saying, oh my God, can you take away that problem? So if I can minimize, uh, if I can minimize issues in forecasting challenges, what are people going to say? How do you do that? I, I can minimize the likelihood your best salespeople leave. What are they going to ask? How do you do that? If I can eliminate inventory write-downs, people are going to say, how do you do that? 
that's one of the ways that I inject the emotion in the value proposition. Okay. So, so do it, do that with, with your product or service for me. So the way that I tend to play this game, I'm going to pretend you're a brand new VP of sales. Mm -hmm. I go, hi, my name's Craig Elias. And I have a really simple way for more of your B players to become A players. What are you going to ask me? What's that? What's that? How? Or um, what if I told you that I have a really simple way to have 21% more of your reps make quota? Fantastic. Yeah. What is that? So then the, I'm going to use this quote as an example. So then I'm going to, so they're going to say, well, what is it you have? And this is the problem that most salespeople have. As soon as someone says what you do, they puke all over the person. Right? They give them all that stuff. They don't ask any questions. So in my case, I might ask, well, how many sales reps do you have? What percentage make quota? Why is it you think your reps can't make quota? And most VPs of sales, senior guys and gals that have been around for a while that are 40 plus will say my reps can't make quota because they don't know how to close. And that's when I say, I don't think that's the problem. Everyone always, everyone always thinks that's the problem, but that is never, that, that is almost never the problem. It's something in the sales process you, you're doing wrong so that the deal's not closing. So I asked the question, would you be willing to invest five minutes to understand why that might not be the problem? As soon as they say yes, then I go, well, the problem I don't think is, is closing. I think the problem is prospecting and qualifying. Yeah. And let me tell you why. And then when I get them down the path of qualifying and um, prospecting, then I say, does that make sense to you? And it's something you might want to investigate further. Sure. And then I just, I help them understand that I actually have over 10,000 endorsements on LinkedIn just for lead generation or prospecting. That's like, a okay. lot. That, that's a lot of endorsements on LinkedIn. <laughs> and like, okay. So then what do you have and how does it work? And then I go through a series of questions. Normally it takes me 20 minutes and I get a date and a credit card number. And that's for the deposit for my speaking fee. That's the way that it works. And I think in almost any industry and geography, you could pick up the phone and go, hi, my name is, and I have a really simple way to eliminate inventory write down. Someone's going to say, how do you do that? And that's the way you get people involved in a conversation. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is build a bridge instead of push rope. And it's amazing how many times people pick up the phone and go, hi, my name is, and I'm selling uh, electric toothbrushes. Would you like one? Well, no, I've already got three of them. I don't need another one. It's one of the biggest problems salespeople have is they can't make a seven second sale because they can't make a seven second sale. They can't make a million dollar sale. So uh, I'm curious and I'm not sure how familiar you are with what, what I do for my day job, but how, how, are you familiar with Badger Maps? I am a little bit, not enough, but I, and I kind of have a context cause I used to be a field sales rep and I have a customer that ended sooner and I'm like, okay, now I'm stuck at a coffee shop for an hour until my next call. Right. So in a nutshell, we take a, a sales rep, we take a field sales rep's territory, put it on a map for them. They can then build a route, figure out their schedule, uh, design their day. Um, really useful for like seeing which customers to focus on because you can view your whole territory in a map. You can colorize by your customers, by, by attribute, things like that. So it helps organize the rep, helps them. We do a bunch of uh, a bunch of things for, for field salespeople that are helpful, save time, help them sell more stuff. So I, I, my, my question would be, how would you do this for me? So uh, that's a good question. So let me think about this. 
So what would you say is your value proposition? The value proposition is that uh, field sales teams using Badger Maps sell more, drive less, waste less time, um, and, and spend less time doing busy work because we do a lot of busy work automatically. Possible. I would pick up the phone and call the same guy and say, I have a really simple way for your reps to spend more time in front of a customer. Got it. What are they going to ask? How is that? How are you going to do that? So right. then I get to ask some questions, right? I'm not going to say, here's what I have. I'm going to say, well, how many reps do you have? And how much, what percentage of the time do they actually spend in front of customers? And they're going to save this amount of time. And then what I would say is, well, uh, if, if I look at the average quota for your rep and the average rep has a $2 million quota and spends 14% of their time and a certain percentage make quota, well, if I could find a way for them to spend 15% more time in front of customers, my argument to you is sales will go up by at least 15%. Would you agree? Yes. So now all of a sudden, instead of someone selling $2 million worth of stuff, they're selling $2,300,000 worth of stuff. Mm -hmm. Would you be willing to spend $30,000 to get that 300 grand back? Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? You see, do you know what I'm selling yet? No. You have no idea. What I'm selling you is value. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden you're like 30 grand for $300,000. That is a total no brainer. Right. So you're really taking price off the table real early. So I'm taking, well, and, and, I, and I'm one of those people that I am not afraid to explain how much I charge. Once I've helped somebody understand the value. Yeah. So what I have is a $30,000 solution that can deliver $300,000 to you. Is that worth pursuing? Because if, it's, if, it's, if they're not willing to spend the 30 grand, what I have doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when they go, that's not a problem, then I might say, great. So what I'd love to do is I'd love to set up a meeting in person or over the phone. When's the, you know, when's the soonest you could make that happen? So I always ask for sooner versus later. And then I always ask for a second person on the call. So I'm going to say, who should be the second person on the call? If you've got the problem, I want the person who's got the budget. Now, why, why do you always ask for a second person on the call? Good question. So I, this came to me years ago when I was helping a bunch of really small companies at uh, Dreamforce. So I'm going around the outside of Dreamforce helping all these other companies. And, and in one of these conversations, there was this big epiphany that came out of the conversation. And the epiphany was that every time these guys had a second person on their first call, the conversation always lasted longer. They learned more. The deal happened faster. And there's actually some data now that supports this whole hypothesis. Guy's name is Donato Dario. And his data says you are three times more likely to get someone as a customer just because you had a second person on that first call. Very interesting. Lots of reasons why. Right? Yeah, and I can think of a ton of them, and it makes it, it makes a ton of sense. It's just not that's not a strategy I've ever employed, but that seems that seems like a great idea. And and here's the thing that I find really amazing: the the one thing that I did when I when I was this lucky sales guy, you know, one of the top or top comp, top salespeople for every person, every company I ever worked for. Um, one day it was a company called WorldCom, and they admitted to conducting eleven billion dollars in accounting fraud. Nobody would buy from me. And for the first time in my life, I did something different. See, for 20 years, I had a sales manager, right? And all the sales managers that I had always said one thing. If you lose the business, you never lose the lesson. And they, they espouse this whole approach of what's called a lost sales analysis. How do you analyze the deals you've lost, hoping you can figure out how you can win more? And for the first time in 20 years, that's actually not what I did. 
that summer, after this WorldCom fiasco where I was no longer employed, I decided to analyze all the business I had won. And reflecting on my luck as a sales guy, when was I good, when was I great, when was I just unstoppable? And that's how I figured some of this stuff out, is when you spend more time reflecting on the business that you win instead of the business that you lose, you learn a more valuable lesson, and you start seeing all these things that have been hiding in plain sight that you never noticed because you never spent time looking for them. Mm -hmm. What's interesting for me is way back when I had this idea of a one sales analysis versus a lost sales analysis, I went to the internet, typed between quotes, lost sales analysis. The importance of those quotes is it's those three words, that phrase, together, in that order, typed it in the internet, found 50,000 pages on the internet. But guess what happened when I took out the word lost and replaced it with the word one, W-O-N. Now I'm looking for what is called a one sales analysis instead of a lost sales analysis. And when I did this search, I found two results on the internet. And that for me was the big epiphany. And that simple act of analyzing the deals I won instead of the deals that I lost completely changed the way I looked at sales and how much more effective I was at it as a result. Yeah, I actually encourage uh, and I've always encouraged my, my VP of sales and, and sales managers on my team to, to do both loss analysis because I, I do believe that from our, and this is probably a general rule in life that we, we, we learn more from our failures and losses than anything else. But I also encourage them to, to do a win analysis and, and to, and to like after every, after a deal is won and uh, to do it, to, to do either in a meeting or an email with the entire sales team to have the, have the rep, uh, communicate why was this deal won? Um, you know, kind of do a little breakdown of the deal. You know, tell you what was the overview of the deal, what are the what are the numbers and everything. Um, what does the company do that that bought the product, and and uh, what were the, what was the value they were looking to get out of the product? Um, uh, you know, how are they measuring or determining? If they're going to get that value, how, what, you know, what, how are they figuring out what it's worth? Were there competitors involved in the deal and how did we beat them? Um, you know, why did we win this deal? And, and things like that, just spread, send out, send an email out to the whole team so that everyone can kind of experience that win and, and get the, not only celebrate it, I mean, I guess it's partially to celebrate it, but it's also to learn from it and to do that, that win analysis. Uh, what, what else would you put into a win analysis? So, so I, I'm going to challenge you on a couple of things. And it doesn't mean I'm right. It just means, again, I have an opinion. So um, let me talk about first, why do salespeople win a deal, do you think? When they win a deal, what do they say? Why did they win that deal? What's, what's the answer they give you more times than not? Mm, I don't know. I, would... I guess they had the best relationship. Um, maybe. I, I guess... You know, for us, I think it's it's more much more often because we had the best product. Like it was just it was the and, and this is software. You know, it's yeah. different than a lot of industries where that, that you know if you're selling uh, something that's more commoditized, there are much, often material differences in in software products. Whereas if you're selling corn, you're selling corn, right? It's a you know this corn is it's graded as at this, and you know what you're selling, you know what you're getting. That's it's more of a commodity. I agree. Most of, most of my customers are in high tech banking or financial services. Mm -hmm. So we on the high tech space. That that's the number one answer. I had the best relationship that allowed me to get in early, learn things my competitors didn't know, be introduced to the decision maker, all of that stuff. 
But when a salesperson loses a piece of business, what do they almost always say was the reason they lost? Um, because the product wasn't good enough. Because we can't do this one thing. My data says price. Oh, That's the biggest excuse they make. Okay. And so here's my argument about the difference between a one sales analysis and a lost sales analysis. If people lose a piece of business because they didn't have the best relationship, the problem is the answers they get are usually lies. People would just want to get them, if they, they don't have a relationship, I don't really care about you, I'm just going to tell you what you need to hear so I can go about my busy day. Mm, this okay. is why, now, here's where I will agree with you. If you lose a customer, that's different than losing a deal. So if you had a customer and you lose them, I do agree with analyzing the customers you lose. And I'll explain why in a minute. But then for me in the one sales analysis, the, the, we want to, it's not what we think, it's what the customer tells us. So part of the process is you pick up the phone or go see the customer and you ask some basic questions. What was the event or what were the events or changes, my world triggers, that led up to this purchase? When did they happen? What made you choose us? What I have learned, if you ask people why questions, they tend to get defensive. So we have to learn how to ask a what or a how question. Mm -hmm. What made you choose us? And when you ask that question, what you're listening for, or you want what you want the customer to get to, maybe with a little prodding, is how do you get them to describe to you the value of being your customer? What was the impact you had? How do you get them to say verbs? What was it that they got out of being your customer? That for me is the first three questions in this one sales analysis. Now, when you lose a customer, same sort of questions. What was the event that caused you to leave? When did it happen? What made you choose them over us? So my one sales analysis on lost customer analysis is not what I think or I believe. It's what the customer tells me. So now it's something that I know. And then I do agree with sharing that with the rest of the team. And here's what happens when salespeople do their own one sales analysis. I don't think a one sales analysis should be farmed out. The salesperson should do it. Because what happens is every time they ask a question and they get an answer back, they're like, hang on a second. That's three times someone has told me it's when my competitive salesperson left. So now all of a sudden what that does, that turns on what is called reticular activation or what you and I might call selective perception. Now they start noticing all the different places or competitors where a salesperson has gone and now they see all these opportunities. And it's not until they ask the questions themselves that those events or triggers showed up on their own selective perception. Somebody gave me something the other day. It's also called a Hoffer-Mannheim syndrome or something. Hold on. There was an interesting um, syndrome. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. But someone, Bader-Hoffman syndrome, something similar. When you get pregnant, what do you see all over the place? Pregnant women. When you buy a new car, what do you see? That car. The same is true when salespeople do their own analysis and they hear of these events, they start noticing them all over the place. Mm. Now they focus. That's my variation of a one sales analysis versus a lost customer analysis. And the reason why those are the most important ones. Really powerful advice. Um, so in your book, you also talk about the credibility curve. Can you, yeah. can you explain what this is? Yeah, so if I don't know you from a hole in the wall, I'm brand new, I have zero credibility. And the challenge is that the less credibility you have, the more risk someone thinks there is in being a customer. 
So the question is, how can you find a way to raise someone's credibility to the point where it's now high enough that they're willing to take on a certain amount of risk to become your customer? So credibility for me comes in three flavors. The first one's called relationship credibility. The second one's called leverage credibility. And the third one's called expertise credibility. So relationship credibility is when, you can, when you've got a relationship with somebody. Well, if you don't have a relationship with somebody, how do you create one? And for me, the way you create one is around a term called propinquity. Propinquity, I'll spell it, P-R-O-P-I-N-Q-U-I-T-Y, propinquity. Propinquity is the impact of nearness, geographical and psychological nearness. So the whole idea is how do you find a way to find these things you have in common with the other person so you start building this credibility in, in the case of the relationship piece, I call it being someone's emotional favorite, someone I'd rather do business with. One of my favorite stories of this is when I lived in North Vancouver, I had an account on Vancouver Island. For me to get from my house to the island is about four hours one way, leave the house, drive to the ferry terminal, wait for an hour, take a ferry that's an hour and 40 minutes and drive 25 minutes when you get across. So I had this account that was doing $10 million with competitors and $60,000 with us. And I'm like, if I'm gonna smoke my quota, that's where I need to go. So I went, and I went the first time, and I said, I'll be here every other Wednesday. And what do you think they all thought the first time I said that? No, you won't. No, you nobody, won't. nobody comes out here every other Wednesday. <laughs> exactly, right? So now my job is to raise their expectations. So I go out two weeks later on a Wednesday, and I learn they like the mountain bike. So I go back two weeks later, I take my mountain bike with me. And we go mountain biking after work. And then in that mountain biking after work scenario, what I learned is they've always wanted to go to Whistler and Blackcomb to go mountain biking. And I'm like, I go there every other weekend. Why don't we pick a weekend? Come with me. So they picked a weekend. 21 of them came over. We went mountain biking around Whistler and Blackcomb for two days and an awesome time. And less than six months later, they went from $60,000 to 3 million bucks because of that relationship credibility. They tell you things they don't tell anybody else. That's the relationship credibility. The leverage credibility is when you have um, somebody else just like them as a customer. So when I can say that I have Hewlett Packard, IBM, all these big people as customers, everybody else goes, wow, if IBM's your customer, then there's no risk in being your customer, therefore I will become your customer. The other piece is how do you become the expert? How do you find a way to be the guy or the gal in one specific place so that when someone says, that's the person that I want, you can find a way to be the most expensive person on the planet and everybody still wants to hire you. That's the way I come at credibility. So are, do you have any advice for reps that are looking to improve their credibility using this credibility curve concept? Yeah. Here, here's what I would do. Um, you phone the people you're trying to get as new customers. You only phone them during two different one-hour time spans in the week. You phone them between 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock on a Monday morning. And when you get them on the phone, what's the first thing you ask? I don't know. What did you do this weekend? Okay. And then they're going to tell you what you did. I had this call yesterday. I know a VP uh, at, this, at this organization I want to build a better relationship with have – uh, known this guy for a couple of years, never found a way to build this connection. And lo and behold, I did this yesterday in the morning, first thing. And all of a sudden, what are we talking about? We're talking about skiing. 
right? And it was amazing how all I had to do was ask that question on a Monday morning and out it came, okay? So I'm fortunate enough that I've skied all over the world and now we get to have these conversations about Val d'Isere and all kinds of other really cool places to ski. The other time you can phone people is on a Friday afternoon, usually between two and three o'clock in the afternoon. When you phone these people, what's the first question you're gonna ask? What are you up to this weekend? What are you up to this weekend? Do you see how easy that is? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like, oh, you're going to Whistler? Man, are you gonna go do the, are you gonna do the Widowmaker? The Widowmaker, yeah, if you go way up the top, the top, at the back, and you go to the glacier, don't go to the glacier. Before you get to the glacier, there is this wall, right? And it is almost straight down. And the only problem is you have to have enough speed when you go down to get out the other side. And that's one of the reasons it's called the Widowmaker. So, right? I got it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar. It didn't, it didn't kill me, but it, uh, there was some risk there. Right? So do you see how this happens? It just yeah. takes, you just have to reflect on your luck as a sales guy or sales gal in the past and say, okay, I can let luck happen or I can make it happen. My whole approach was, how do I find a way to make it happen? And it turns out that for me, relationships are by far the biggest secret weapon that I have. I get some phenomenal introductions purely based upon the people that I have met Right? And finding a way to understand who they are right? and finding these things in common. Well, that, that, that is a, a fantastic tip right there. Um, just fantastic. So, so many people kind of mail it in on Friday afternoon, but that's, that's a, a powerful time to, to, uh, to be making these deepening connections and, and, and getting, building those relationships in, in this way. It's really powerful. There's a bonus though. And the bonus is that when you call people on Monday morning, they've got things on their list that they want to get done this week. And if it just turns out that you can help them take something off the list, they'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And or what happens is it's been on the list all week and they haven't gotten to it yet. You phone them on Friday afternoon, you can help them take it off the list before they go home. They'll love you. Yeah. Well, another thing uh, that came up in your book is first call effectiveness. Is there... Yeah. Can you talk about how salespeople can prevent decision makers from looking at their competitors using first call effectiveness? So for me, if you have this time in front of somebody, first of all, you got to help them make sure that they help them redefine the problem, start looking at what does the solution look like? And you want to try and find a way to get some agreement for a second meeting with two people in the room before you get out of there. The more stuff you can get done on your first call, the more they've invested in you, the more likely it is that when a competitor picks up the phone and says, hey, I can help you with this, do you have that problem? They're like, no, I'm already halfway through the solution with Craig, so how do you find a way to get them farther down the path before they pick up the phone and talk to anybody else? One of my favorite examples, office furniture, people show up in a showroom, okay, um, to come look at the things they have. One of their top salespeople came to me and said, Craig, I, I hear you're pretty good at this, I wanna, find a way to spend less time in the showroom. And I'm like, no, you don't. You wanna find a way to spend more time in the showroom. And let me tell you why. Because when people show up in the showroom, you can ask them a question. What brought you in today? And now you can learn of all these events. The other cool thing is when they show up in a showroom, they're not a customer yet. What you can get them to do is you can get them to fill in a credit application before they leave. So now later on when they're in a hurry, and they need to order furniture right away, where's the only place they have credit approval? Your place. Mm-hmm. Do you see how on that first call or visit, you can find a way to move them further down the path of being your customer to the point where they don't want to back up a bunch of days or weeks 
and then do it all over again with somebody else. You can become the path of least, least resistance. You totally, it's the path of least resistance. I'm a huge believer of, in fact, the data suggests, I forget who this was, I want to say it was um, Andrew, oh, what's his last name? Um, it's going to drive me crazy. It's on the tip of my tongue. Um, Gaffney, Andrew Gaffney wrote something a while ago that said basically the person who was easiest to do business with won the business like 33% of the time. I believe that. Hmm? Well, I'd like to move into the next section of the show called sales in 60 seconds. So it's kind of short question, short answer section. Sure. So tell me what, which are the best referral sources for trigger events? LinkedIn and LinkedIn and press releases. In your opinion, what's the most challenging part of shift selling? Focus, pick one or two events you're going to focus on and just hammer away at those one or two things and think about the ripple effect of those things. One job change creates four opportunities, not one. Don't chase 10 different things. Just find one or two and maximize the opportunities for those one or two. Okay. What's your best tip to prioritize clients to make the most of your time? Um, phone only on Monday mornings and Friday afternoons. What do you mean by that? Again, phone at eight to nine and two to three and just go after the people you can reach during that time frame. If, if you're talking to people who during the middle of the week, odds are they're not likely, but then it's job change, job change, job change, especially if they've been less than 90 days on the job. Okay. What's a common mistake you see reps making in their conversations with prospects? Someone says, I'm thinking of changing, call me back in six months. And they go, oh, this person isn't ready yet. Why don't I phone them back and forth and see what happens? Biggest single mistake sales reps make today. Since you're an expert in B2B sales, are there any books or resources that you would recommend salespeople uh, check out to better understand things and, sure. and better Two themselves? Things. Chapter four of spin selling, pages 67 to 95, the best 30 pages ever written about sales. After you understand the impact or implication of your product or service, then you need to go read a book called Never Be Closing. Two guys named Tim. It is the, it's a yellow book, it's called Never Be Closing. One guy's out of Toronto, one guy's out of Barcelona, I think. It is the only sales book I've ever read cover to cover twice. It is the most I've underlined, highlighted, and dog-eared a book. And this, is what it looks like. And this is what my book looks like. Dog-eared, highlighted, like it's amazing all the things that are in this book. And it actually helped people solve the credibility problem. Awesome. I think I, I, I might've had the two guys named Tim on the show. I actually think I had two guys named Tom who wrote a book together on the show. <laughs> That's confusing. Um, but, uh, all right. Well, in terms of actionable takeaways here, what should the field salespeople listening today do as a first step towards getting started with trigger event selling? Uh, two things. Have a rock solid value proposition. Because if you call somebody and you drag on for too long, it's never going to happen. So that's the say the right things. To the right people uh, is a decision maker who's new in their job, right? So finding people with money, authority, and influence, that for me is the big thing. Pick up the phone. And again, maybe that's the other thing. Pick up the phone. Like, don't send an email. Pick up the phone. Hi, Tim. My name's Craig Elias. 
I have a really simple way for more of your reps to make quota. And if you get a voicemail, leave that as a voicemail. When you, when you start, hi, my name's Craig Elias and my number is, my phone number goes at the very beginning. I have a really simple way for more reps to make quota. And again, my number is this. And I leave it at that. No rambling on, it's 10 to 12 seconds. I'll almost guarantee you they'll call you back, especially if you can get their cell phone number because they simply push a button that says call back. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to attempt to summarize all, all the stuff that we've talked about today in a minute or two here. So shift selling is a way to leverage opportunities when there's a shift in people's mindset. So these shifts occur when people's expectations change. Trigger events occur um, because, of, because of the timing uh, associated with, with, with an event. You have to say the right thing to the right people at the right time. And uh, people decide when they want to make a change. Certain events make people unhappy and make them want to make a change. Three different events that can bring about change are A, awareness, B, a bad experience, change in salespeople with their current salespersons, then uh, with the vendor that their current salesperson has, uh, changing the products, changing the reputation, um, and then C, just change in general, change in the organization, change in the decision makers, change in locations, change in priorities. So awareness, bad experience, and change make people have these trigger events. Work to understand each prospect's problem more. So how do you do that? Follow up and set a meeting to ask more about the problem and reframe the problem, making your solution a perfect fit. A lot of times people misidentify problems and the reason your solution existed was to solve that problem, the actual problem, the problem behind you know, the, the, the surface level problem. Um, when providing value propositions to prospects, make statements that will help them solve a big negative that they're experiencing. Always have a second person in the meeting whenever possible, and you'll close deals faster. The conversation lasts longer, you get more information, and the deal moves forward faster if you can get that second person in the meeting. So, you know, after you set a, as you set a meeting with someone, just ask, Hey, is there anyone else that should be in this meeting that this would be interesting to you in your organization? Anyone else is important that they're there? Um, so instead of only reflecting on the business you've lost and avoiding what has gone wrong, practice also doing one analyses to see um, one W-O-N analyses uh, to see what has been working for you to win deals. When you lose a deal, it's not always easy to understand why the deal doesn't, didn't close because the prospect can often lie about the reason they didn't buy. And the, the easiest thing for them, it, rather than you know, describe why they didn't see the value in your product or, or, or you or whatever, is to just blame it on the price. Um, but that's, also, that, that's, that's why reps often, if you ask them, why, why did you lose a deal? They, the price is what comes up when really there was something else there. That's just what the, what the person that didn't buy from you told you. When you experience a win in sales, you can ask customers why they chose you. And these answers will probably be more accurate. Credibility is very important in closing, closing sales. 
uh, with relation cre relationship credibility, you can build a relationship with the idea of propinquity, which is a new word for me. That's the impact of nearness. Um, make contact and make contact often in person and through other channels when, when necessary. And make an effort to get close to your customer or prospect and understand their interests so that you can really find commonalities. A great tip, call people on Monday morning or Friday afternoon to talk about their weekend, and that way you can you know, uncover their interests in a really organic way. As a final takeaway, uh, have a very solid value proposition. Don't ramble on and make sure your value is super clear. Uh, I'll tell you, Craig, this has been nothing short of fantastic. Where can listeners read more about your work? How do they reach out to you if they're interested in, in learning more about what you're what your services are? So two things. Uh, first of all, I'd say go send me a LinkedIn connection request. So once we connect on LinkedIn, I'll actually send an email where people can go download my entire book, an Adobe Acrobat, totally free. The other place if they want to learn more is I might suggest going to youtube.com forward slash Craig Elias because then uh, they can see I have something as short as 14 minutes and as long as an hour and five. They can learn a little bit more. And right on my homepage, there's a uh, pricing piece. So if they're curious how much it costs for me to come and spend, you know, a half hour, an hour a day with their team, they can get pricing in as little as like 30 seconds. Fill in the form, it instantly sends them pricing back. They don't have to wait for me to actually get to my email and they can then get a sense of whether it's not something that might be a fit. Fantastic. Well, this has been a great episode of the Outside Sales Talk. If you can think of any other sales reps that would benefit from learning these uh, skills that we've talked about today, share the love and forward it on to them. Take care until next time, guys.